Hello everyone, Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager. Today I'm very excited to have Andrew DiBajago with me. Andrew is a lawyer, a writer, public speaker, media personality, and for those of you who may not remember, he was a 2016 independent candidate for President of the United States. However, he is best known for serving as a U.S. chrononaut in Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel and Project Mars throughout the beginnings of interdimensional travel. Welcome to Timeless Voyager, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Bruce. Good to be back with you. Yeah, the original Project Pegasus was a program of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It was a classified defense-related research and development program. I was in it roughly from 1968 to 72. But then when I began speaking about it, I launched a new Project Pegasus, which was an attempt to promote teleportation to deal with the carbon crisis and afford us the opportunity, well, a number of things, but primarily afford us the opportunity to achieve sustainability in this century, the 21st century. And we ended up speaking about the old Project Pegasus as if the environmental goals of the new Project Pegasus could be attributed to DARPA rather than to myself. And uh, I was always an environmental scholar when I was talking about the old Project Pegasus so that the new world we're living in could embrace teleportation. What do you have prepared for us today? Well, what I want to talk about today is originally began as an offshoot of DARPA's Project Pegasus when a woman came to my school, Mount View Road School in Mars Plains, New Jersey, and told us, kids, we don't want you to worry about losing your lives time traveling for this program because we're going to show you by doing a past life regression of each of you just once so you'll know what happens to us when we die. We go on. And she described what would not really emerge for several years with the works of Raymond Moody, for example, of uh, life after death and life after life. She said, uh, if you're killed time traveling for us, You'll leave your body, you'll go through a tunnel of light, very similar to the teleportation you've been experiencing in the program, and you'll go, you'll, you'll meet Jesus or perhaps a deceased loved one, um, and you'll be told that you've died, and you'll go to heaven, and you will go on, you'll be recycled into a new person. Now, that was when I was nine. That was in uh, 1970. I'm going to describe today who they regressed me to. And then I'm going to describe what I've learned about reincarnation and what I really believe happens when we die. Ever since then, I believe that there's very little evidence, both in my experience and in virtually everybody's experience, 
that the doctrine of reincarnation is valid. I believe it's not. Hmm. I believe something else is going on when people believe they've re- recovered past life memory or experience. So I believe, in other words, that there was a kind of a glitch or mistake that was made around that time, not just in Project Pegasus, but in the popular culture in which the essentially the Hindu doctrine of reincarnation supplanted what I really think is going on. We do go on, but I believe it's as ourself. And I have been shown over and over and over again that that, in fact, is what goes on. And so I'm going to cite a number of examples that have happened during my lifetime that indicate what I call continuity is what's going on and not reincarnation. So it's going to be about reincarnation, but it's going to be my conviction. I'll cite evidence. I'll cite bases of decision, if you will, that I believe the doctrine of reincarnation is not valid. And it's kind of curious that just as the U.S. government has concealed the fact that it retrieved chronovisor-based footage of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, it seemed quite intent in supplanting the the um, the truth about um, the uh, resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of all of us with a far more suspect and dubious theory of what happens hmm. when we when we die. Now we're all going to, so I think there's nothing to obsess on. We should enjoy our lives, but I think we deserve the truth of the fact that it's closer to resurrection than reincarnation as somebody else. So that's going to be the theme of today's show. All right. Well, um, I'm sure there are a lot of people waiting to hear this, so let's go. Oh, yeah, certainly something germane to every timeless voyager, if you will. Okay. (laughs) So after, I don't know what this woman's name was, but she was clearly a bright person probably a PhD in psychology or something. And there were about five of us there. It was always in the art lab and in the front of Mountview. And always being, you know, Andy Bishago, AB, and never liking to wait for anything. You know, just as when I was sitting in the ARC at 909 North Sepulveda when I was 19 in July of 1981, And I grew impatient being sent to Mars, you know, by a jump room. I said, light this candle. So among the five kids there, being given the opportunity to explore a past life, as I would a number of times later in my my young life, not with DARPA, but with just independent regressionists, I insisted that I you know, go first. She said, okay, which of you kids wants to go first? And I just said, I do. I'd I'd like to go first. And I did. And she was a really good regressionist. I immediately fell into uh, a relaxed, calm state of mind, laying on my back on one of the art 
art room tables with the other kids around me. And what I saw myself as in this past life, that's what we believed was being tapped, was an individual who at this point, because I've studied who that was my whole life, I know exactly who it was. What I saw in the in the first you know regression that I had that where I tapped this life was I was being hired and getting to know the students as a geometry professor at Cornell, not not Cornell, Amherst College, Amherst College in Massachusetts. I've since identified exactly who this was, even though obviously during that first regression, I just got clues and I developed clues over a lifetime of regression of, um, of dreaming about that person's life and so forth. The life that I tapped in that first regression in Pegasus was an individual named Ebenezer strong, um, Snell, also known as simply as Ben Snell. He was born in 1801. He died in 1876. And he was really at Amherst from the beginning of Amherst. He was the first graduate of Amherst. He then went on and became a tutor there. And then by the late 1820s, he became a professor there, initially a professor of geometry. That's what I saw myself doing when I was regressed by Project Pegasus. I saw myself joining my students in a lab at Amherst. I then became a tutor there. Okay. And when I was first regressed to that life, I saw myself teaching there as a professor okay. of geometry. I got it. And in specific past life memories what they were calling past life memories, but I have other theories as to what I was accessing in all of my past life regressions and that all of us access in past life regressions. I saw myself coming to class and interacting with my students, with Ebenezer Snell's students. He then um, taught all the way to the time of the Civil War but then essentially became depressed that all these bright young people that he had such fond memories of as his former students, their names were being reported as Civil War combat fatalities, mostly from the North, you know, because as I mentioned, Amherst is in Massachusetts. So it's say, you know, 12th Massachusetts Regiment, 15th Maine, you know, Regiment. 22nd New Jersey Infantry, whatever. And um, it was really depressing me toward the end of my career because all these wonderful young people that I had such fond memories of were being killed in this damn civil war, Uh, a civil war that I felt could have been prevented. And um, it was a difficult time, so I retired. But they brought me back, even giving me a cottage near the campus, And I insisted that I be able to teach not geometry, but like political economy, like political science, how we can prevent the next civil war by making society more just and more functional. 
and I was still teaching there when I died at age 75 in 1876. So that was my first encounter with a past life, or what I believe was a past life, by being regressed. But during my lifetime of study of what I thought was reincarnation, there were earlier experiences, even before that age nine, you know, experience with Pegasus. For example, when I was about five, before I knew the, what the birds and the bees were about, I had had a dream of a sexual encounter in a, a place of prostitution somewhere in the Orient. And in the dream, I saw myself making love to a, an Asian courtesan. And so as I analyzed my past life experience, all the way from earliest childhood, I began creating proofs of reincarnation, just as that woman had. She assumed she was regressing all five of we children to moments in our actual past as reincarnated individuals. So when I analyzed that sexual memory, I thought, wait a minute, I didn't know about, about sexual intercourse, even anatomical differences between the genders in this life when I had that, that memory. Hmm. So that must be a past life memory. Could be. But very, very recently, I began to analyze other potential causations for past life memory and also specifically the lies being accessed under past life regression. At the same time, I have accounted for experiences I've had and that others who I know have had, including some very gifted psychics. I believe that past life memory is, I mean, the bottom line is that I believe past life memory is from other causes. For example, when I was analyzing and writing my book about past lives, going all the way back to earliest childhood, I was ignoring the fact that I was such a gifted psychic as a child that the U.S. Navy Office of Naval Intelligence asked me to remotely view Lieutenant Commander John Sidney McCain, Jr., future um, Senator John McCain of Arizona, when he was captive in Vietnam. I was shown his picture, and it was the one that's on the English Wikipedia site for the late Senator McCain. It was his Annapolis uh, graduation photograph, his ensign photograph. Now, I was asked to do that, to, to see, was he in the Hanoi Hilton, the POW compound in North Vietnam, where, he was, where they found out he was being held? And I was asked to, to, to remotely view where he was in the building. And they said to us, this again was on Pegasus uh, in around 1969. I was in the first grade. And that really marked the beginning of remote viewing. It did not begin three years later in 1972 at SRI, which is the claim that individuals like uh, um, 
Targ and Puttoff and Swan, who are viewed as the progenitors of remote viewing, have long claimed. No, it began with the Navy and the use of children to look for specific things for the, the Navy. In my case, to find out whether <clears throat> the son of the commander of the Pacific Fleet, John McCain Jr., was in that POW compound, and if so, where he was in the building. And they said, you know, you kids we know are very psychic. You often have dreams that come true. And what we want you to do is, here's this picture of John, and John is being kept by bad people somewhere in the world, and here's one of the buildings that we think he may be in. And over the next week, we want you to go home and dream about the question, where is John? And tell us, is he in this building? And if so, where where he is he in this building? And I saw what was happening to the late, you know, the former uh, late Senator McCain in captivity in Vietnam. They had built what was called a tiger cage over on the side of this hallway that went under the building. And it was illuminated just by bare bulbs. And he was having a miserable time. I mean, they were doing things like hanging Senator McCain, then Lieutenant Commander McCain, from his elbows until his shoulders were pulled out of their sockets. He was being placed in a tiger cage to spend most of his time that was so short he couldn't even stand up. So that period of, I guess, what was it, 1965 to 1973, in which Senator McCain was captive in Vietnam, he was basically living a a life experience of hell on earth. He was basically being tortured for eight years. He had to live in incredibly adverse conditions. So I'm kind of partial to the memory of Senator McCain in the sense that I didn't vote for him when he ran for president in 08. Um, but I, 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 I related, I, I used to get choked up about the fact that he was free and enjoying being a senator, which we could see. Mm-hmm. Because clearly being a prisoner of war in Vietnam was, was, was not fun for him. And I related to him because he reminded me of the young guys in my neighborhood in Mars Plains, New Jersey, who were going off to Vietnam. I was thinking that I might go, go off to Vietnam. But when the war finally ended in what, um, 1975? I was all of 14. So I was part of that generation. Certainly I had a, a kind of a quasi Vietnam experience doing this remote viewing of where John McCain Jr. was in North Vietnam. But I was also a young American who was anticipating that if the war didn't end, I, I'd be going. I mean, I was, you know, going to be on, on that generation that would step up and, uh, have some kind of Vietnam experience, just like my first cousin Rudy Nitz did. I mean, Rudy was tortured during the Tet Offensive. He was captured by the North Vietnamese, and he was dunked in a tub full of water for 30 seconds for an hour. And we found out about that. 
when he was captured. We found out what happened to our cousin Rudy in Vietnam. And I, I knew that, man, if I, if I have to go there, I might die or I might be seriously tortured if I'm, if I'm captured. And I had seen a lot of what um, Lieutenant Commander McCain was experiencing there. And I had heard about what my cousin had endured as somebody captured during the Tet Offensive. So it gave me a kind of an anti-war sentiment. And, um, you know, it, it was really part of our life all the way through college because I ended up getting the uh, VA's principal demographic study of Agent Orange kicked off the UCLA campus in, um, in 1983 by writing a series of articles for the UCLA College newspaper. So Vietnam was part of my consciousness yeah. for a, a long part of my childhood and young adulthood. Right. And and this, um, when, when I thought about my past lives, I thought, wait a minute. I left out the fact that I was such a good psychic as a kid that the Office of Naval Intelligence gave me an assignment for John McCain's father the commander of the Pacific fleet. And uh, that must have meant that they had made a finding about me, but I never really factored that into my growing list of past life memories. Another thing I I didn't factor in, for example, to the um, five-year-old, you know, recovered memory of a sexual encounter in an Asian setting is that just within my immediate environment growing up, there were middle-aged men who had served in the Asian theater of World War II. My, my dad hadn't. He was a combat medic and ambulance driver with the 13th Airborne Division of the U.S. Army in France and Germany on the other side of the planet during the war. He was not in Asia. But there were other fathers just in the immediate neighborhood where I, was, I grew up, where I was sleeping all the time as a kid, who had served in the Pacific Theater of World War II. There were Korean War veterans right around us, and there were World War, um, excuse me, uh, Vietnam veterans who had either been there or were going there. So what I determined over time is there were different potential psychic bases for um, my past life memories, every last one of them, and I'll describe how I know that. Let's take Ben Snell first. In 1970, fall of 1970, that's when they sent me back via via, um, Chronovision to meet uh, Washington. And I did. I met uh, General George Washington from 1970 in August of 1776 in his encampment at Brooklyn Heights. And there I advised him to, to retreat his troops from New York Harbor. But then I thought, wait a minute. Right around that time, that's also when they did that, that one past life regression with me, just to assure us that if we lost our lives time traveling for Project Pegasus, we would go on. We wouldn't ultimately lose everything. And um, 
And I thought, wait a minute, of all the people, if I've had, you know, hundreds of past lives, thousands of past lives, why would I, on this one regression, right in that same season, see myself born on the East Coast of the United States, where our country was founded, where all of the Revolutionary War was founded, and hence the battle ground that I went to to meet with Washington. What are the chances? And I thought, well, that could have been what actually caused me to psychically pick up the life of Ben Snell, first graduate of Amherst. Amherst, Amherst is in Massachusetts, right up the coast from Brooklyn, New York, where I had gone to uh, meet with Washington. And I started thinking maybe it had more of a psychic connection than a past life connection. Maybe the the men in my immediate neighborhood who had had some kind of assignation with an Asian courtesan in World War II, the Korean War, or Vietnam, or were anticipating that possibility in some dream or something, might have been the source of that memory, that it wasn't me in a past life having a sexual encounter in Asia. It was simply maybe a dream that was going on in the neighborhood, just like the fact that maybe I picked up Ben Snell's life when they sent me to uh, to Brooklyn Heights to meet with Washington. And so I applied let, that principle. Let me just interrupt you for a second. Yeah. So um, in this evidentiary proof, so to speak, you're suggesting, I think, that when people get caught up in the idea of reincarnation, as is uh, understood, they mistake, let me call them um, snippets of information as whole life experiences that they once had. Is that correct? Yes, they, they use what I call single-pointed proofs because when they get excited about the intrigue of the notion of a past life, by the way, very often a glamorous or mysterious woman like uh, a Matahari or a Cleopatra or um, was Asian, uh, Pocahontas, Joan of Arc, or some valorous male, if they're focusing on a male life, or they are a male rather than a female. Uh, men will think about being Washington or um, Napoleon hmm. or some, some sort of valorous male. They're trying to prove reincarnation. But what they don't consider is, what about the fact that when we're alive in the human form, listen, this is the first proof, by the way, not the only one that I have, but so let's focus on it. If you're trying to prove reincarnation, I've noticed how people do whatever they can to prove the validity of reincarnation. Um, they study that person's life. They take all the snippets from dreams and from eidetic thoughts of that life. And, for example, I thought for many years that I was 
the Swedish economist who became the second secretary general of the UN. His name was Dag Hammarskjöld. He wrote a famous memoir called Markings. And I was so certain that I was Hammarskjöld that I used to tell junior high school and high school friends, and indeed I told my siblings when I was very young, I was Dog. But I've now recovered the memory that I began believing that I was Dog Hammarskjöld when my dad bought the Funk and Wagnalls Encyclopedia, and I opened up the uh, the chapter or you know the entry over Dog Hammarskjöld, and I was astonished that he died the day I was born, not just my birthday, but literally the date that I I was born, September eighteenth, nineteen sixty one, was the day that Hammarskjöld was killed in a a plane crash. Uh, while negotiating peace in the Belgian Congo. And I I remember thinking, God, I must have been dog. And that caused me to go into the study where my four older siblings were doing their homework and say to each one of them separately, I was dog. Okay, and then from that snippet, I began, you know, studying aspects of Hammarskjöld's life Mm-hmm. That then when I would revisit those snippets would seem very personal. Like I found out he was born in um, John Koning, Sweden. So I once said to a Swedish friend of ours in California, Inger Vincent, she was actually the uh, Countess Blockenspiel. She was a, a Swedish countess. She was the first cousin of King Gustav, Gustavus of Sweden. And I said, Inger, I, I was Doug Hammarskjöld. And she said, well, if you were Dog Hammarskjöld, I knew, where were you born? And I said, John Koning. But I think I pronounced it incorrectly because I was pronouncing as I had read it, mm-hmm. not as an mm-hmm. Swede would pronounce it. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually John Koning mm-hmm. rather than John Koning. But that went on my whole life. Mm-hmm. I, I essentially, and by the way, this was not true for Pegasus or Mars. Those were classified defense projects. But because my only classified involvement with reincarnation was that one regression that Pegasus did. I concluded that they basically had an influence on making me believe a false doctrine until very recently for a probably false doctrine. It's not really my goal to disprove reincarnation, but I will point up some patterns. One is in addition to looking at what could have influenced the belief, is the the fact that I have had quite a number of experiences, as have people close to me and, and others, in which it's much more common for the deceased to come back with by visualizing their presence or just their voice as themselves. Let me cite a couple examples. One are my parents. My dad born in 1923, my mom born in 1925. My father died in 1990. He certainly didn't come back right away as himself or as somebody else. My mother then died in 2003, 13 years later. And I was living in her house because my siblings and I were selling it 
after her passing. And three days after she died, I heard her in the house. Not just puts her in the house, but I, she called out to me. Andy, I think just to tell me that she still existed after dying in this world. So my, my case against reincarnation and the things that have been confused for reincarnational effects is not to disprove the afterlife. In fact, I believe there is ample proof of the afterlife that we do not perish. We are not obliterated with physical death, quite the opposite. We go on, but I believe we go on as ourselves. Now, in this first example, three days after passing, I hear my mother in the house, Andy, it was almost like she was reminding me or, or confirming for me that she still existed. I've gotten so many of the, such stories that I, I know I can even cite today, and I will, characteristics of these afterlife communications. They are quite substantial, quite numerous. Now, a couple of days later, after her passing, my father, who had died 13 years earlier, appeared to me in this way. I had gone over to a friend's house elsewhere in Los Angeles County to to, to sing some karaoke just to get my mind off the fact that my second parent had, had left us. And I had really tired myself doing a 40-minute eulogy for my mom. I was very happy how that went. My sister-in-law and I actually saw my mom smile as she lay in state after I finished the eulogy for her. She's laying there and is has perished and been embalmed. Her body has been embalmed. And I sit down after the eulogy, and my sister, one of my sister-in-laws who was sitting on the rope behind me and I saw a smile on, on my mom's corpse. Now, that's interesting. And, uh, and, and so now I'm on a Los Angeles freeway. It's now about a week since my mom has died. I drive down to a friend's place in another part of L.A., and I'm coming home back to the house my mom owned. And I see that there's an old man in a Toyota pickup truck over on the left shoulder of the right lane. And I go, God, if you know, it was like two o'clock in the morning. I had not been doing any drinking. You know, alcohol is a depressant. So you don't want to be drinking when you're mourning a loss of somebody close to yourself. And uh, I, so I wasn't. And uh, I, I, I drive over to where I think there's this old man stuck in the middle of the freeway, thinking I, I can tell this guy I'll give him a, a lift to a gas station or maybe push his car and give him a kickstart and get him out of this rather dangerous situation. Because I figured if his car is not working, if he tries to make it work with traffic behind him, he can get you know killed with a another vehicle crashing into him. So I better get this gentleman out of here. So I slow up and I drive alongside the Toyota pickup truck and I look over and it's my dad. It is my dad. I was like, I don't know, five feet from his face. He was, and he wasn't behind the wheel of the car, which it looked like 
back when I was farther back on the freeway, he was sitting in the right seat hmm. and was smiling at me like, God, Andy, that was a beautiful eulogy you did for your mom. I'm very proud of you. And I know soon you'll be going back and getting all the information that I asked you to tell about Project Pegasus. Because he had asked me to do that uh, in 1989, like two months before he died, or maybe a, a month, like November of, of uh, 89, and he died in January of, of 90. But it was my dad. But was it my dad in physical form? No. It was my dad as if as if his original body, his original facial physiognomy, his weight, his age, his hair color, which was white by then in his life, it was black when he was younger, had been cast as a series of sparkles. And psychics who I've known have reported this. One of the characteristics when somebody returns from the, the dead who are proving the existence of the afterlife, whatever those things really are, um, is often cast as sparkles. It's almost as if they're able to um, cast their original appearance in some other way as a series of sparkles and almost more of a sepia tone type of gray skin. I'm not the only one who's reported that. Um, another um, characteristic I found was an interview I did with the <clears throat> professor of afterlife studies at Cal State Bakersfield, uh, Dr. Stanford Betty. He's convinced that afterlife communication is often so clear and so language-like that those in the afterlife are going to sort of like a phone booth. I was reached by such a person. I'll talk about that. Um, so I've seen my dad and I've heard my mom. My fiance Gwen has seen her parents several times. And it is, it is a characteristic of mediumship. Here's another characteristic. Mediumship of those in the afterlife has established that they have a time limit. They never show up for a long period or have to have a, like a long, Andy, that's all she was allowed to yell. I didn't see her in the house back in 2003, but clearly it was my mom's voice. There was nobody else in the house or walking by in the neighborhood. There was nobody named Andy on her street. It was my mother. I knew my mom's voice, just like I knew my dad's appearance. Um, so I think that we've, we've essentially tried to establish the notion that we leave our bodies, we go through a tunnel, we may meet Jesus or some loved one or something, and then we go on and become somebody in another life. That's essentially the doctrine of reincarnation. But I don't believe that happens. I believe we remain the same person. In 13 years, would my dad have had a chance to review his life as Raymond Francis Boshago? A very good life, I believe, ultimately. I mean, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Scripture teaches. But my dad was an American hero. He fought the Nazi 
regime in in Europe. He pioneered time travel for our government, our people, and Mars visitation for that matter. I mean, my dad and I may have been the first human beings from Earth, the first father and son uh, to go to Mars, to go to another planet, to be on another planet together. I don't know, but it's possible. Um, so he, 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 he definitely lived a good life in terms of being an honest, just person and being dedicated to his country and his family. He tried to use his God-given gifts to excel and to do new things. Um, I mean, he was a kid from Summit Hill, Pennsylvania, who pioneered time travel, who was one of the people who built the ramjet to chase, to chase extraterrestrial craft away from our planet. So he, he used his God-given gifts. And I think in the main, um, applied himself as a human being. But I believe that the evidence suggests that continuity of spirit is what actually happens. We go on as the same person in a different realm, a different dimension, but we keep our persona in this life. Um, what we're talking about is spirit, not persona. I think the doctrine of reincarnation was promoted to obscure the fact that our spirits matter. What we do and don't do in this life matters in terms of the ultimate disposition of our spirit. How would it if reincarnation was the pattern? Suddenly you're changed, you're in a different country, a different continent perhaps. You might be a different gender. You might be um, in some country you've never been in in the past life. I mean, I, I, I had a belief that one of my lives was in Suriname. In Suriname, Dutch is spoken. And one of my proofs of reincarnation was what was known as, or what is known as, xenoglossy. That means knowledge of a foreign language you've never studied. And presumably, hence, your knowledge of that foreign language must be from a past life. Well, when I remembered these experiences that I thought were mine in Suriname, I came up with the Dutch word, uh, Wiesus, which means orphanage, you know, place where the kitties live, the Wieshoos. Um, and, uh, and it, I've accepted that probably I had that memory from somebody's experience in Suriname when I traveled in Latin America, just as all of my past life memories, including several in England, for example, I lived in England for, for a year, um, 1994 and 95. Why would I have not come up with a life in Africa? I've never come up with an African life. And I've also noted how Caucasians seldom refer to a, um, a life as a black African person. And I believe that's cultural. And I believe it shows how past life memories, as they're called, are to some extent self-serving. They're self-creating. They're being scripted by the person, not experienced um, by somebody who has been reincarnated. You know, so other, you, know yeah. you, you bring up the concept 
let me digress for a moment. Um, I think I've mentioned this before, but if not, I'll mention it now. Uh, Gurdjieff, who I like to study periodically, and was covered quite a bit by P.D. Ospensky in many of his books, talked about what he called recurrence. He also, as you're saying now, he did not believe in reincarnation. I think he said actually it was too too complicated. <laughs> because in his uh and there was not a lot written incidentally about recurrence, but there's a little there's some of it. But he um expressed the idea that much like in a dream, and I think I think that's that's what I'm going to use as an example. In a dream, you all of a sudden are in a particular place. You didn't have to drive there. You didn't have to make sense of where you had been in the dream before you got to this other place. Everything is quick. Everything just happens. It doesn't make any sense. But in the dream, you're willing to accept anything. It doesn't have to make sense. In recurrence, which Gurdjieff talked about, it's very similar in the sense that you don't have to be born, be a child, grow up, and then get to this particular part. Maybe you're 34 years old or maybe you're 50. You don't have to do that. You can have the experience of whatever it was when you're 50. And in recurrence, it's very similar to a dream. That was his uh I guess, idea that he felt was, that made it, in his particular case, he used the word continuity. Um, it presents a certain amount of continuity with all, without all of that history that needs to go on in order for you to be in a particular place. You could be there now. Um, I, just right. wanted, I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I appreciate that. Let's just table that for a second because sure. I want to, I want to, build a case for continuity. And by that, I mean, I believe, I'll I'll just put all my cards on the table. I believe that when our body dies, our spirit leaves the body and it goes to another realm with continuity of persona. That's something to think about because the people upstairs are going to know who we are. History is going to know who we are. Our surviving uh, current fellow humans may have means of remembering us, especially with the internet, or just because they knew us and are still alive. But I I don't believe that it's just a theory of continuity. I believe I can create an unassailable case for it. So let me cite some other examples. In the early part of the 20th century, in 2008, in fact, I had an extremely good friend named Gene just in the interest of his privacy and his surviving family members. I'll not use his last name, but, but Gene was a van driver at the Portland airport who was so generous of spirit that he would take friends of his like me to the airport from the airport or around town. I was practicing law on this side of the Columbia river here in uh, Vancouver, Washington. And Gene would, 
just at a moment's notice pick us up. He was an extremely generous of spirit Buddhist. And he actually tried to share his Buddhism with me. We went to the Buddhist um, temple and he involved me in Buddhism. And I had visited him a few times, once at home and a number of times at Presbyterian Hospital in Portland when he was dying of cancer. In fact, when he was really close to death and he was, he was afraid of dying. And I said, Gene, you're going to go on. Don't worry. And then I let him pass as a friend. He was with his family. And then finally he was admitted for the final time at, at Presbyterian Hospital. And um, the morning that he died, which I believe was September 8th of 2008, I was sleeping at a house in Portland that I was house-sitting for a friend. And uh, I woke up. And I realized that Gene was in a room of the house. And I, I turned my, my legs over the bed and I listened to him. And the best I can describe what I heard was this, in a perfect rendering of Gene's voice. And I had known him for five years. I had gone back up to practice law in Washington when my mom died in 2003. And I heard her voice and then that week saw my dad. So that period of the first decade of this century was extremely busy for me in terms of these afterlife communications. And, and Gene said something like, like this. He said, Andy, this is Gene. I've passed, Andy. And I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm out of my body and I'm not in pain anymore. And Gene was in a lot of pain from his cancer. Um, and he said... Uh, and I have to tell you, Andy, it's beautiful over here. I can't wait until you can get over here. It's just beautiful. And he basically described this parkland that he, Gene, was in. And then, then the phone rang. And his sister was on the other line. Hmm. And I don't say what her name is, because that'll, that'll like help more so identify the family. But I said to Gene's sister, one of his sisters, Gene's past, hasn't he? And she said, yeah, Andy, how did you know that? And I said, well, I didn't call the hospital. And nobody else in your family has spoken with me since Gene died. But I heard him here right, right in my house in Portland when he was passing. He was telling me how beautiful it was on the other side and how he was out of his body. Okay, so that was a friend and a very good one. And he was an exceptionally decent, Christic, generous of spirit individual. In his case, Buddhist, I'm a Christian. We always accepted each other's faith. And I know, I, you know, I had been Gene's friend for five years, and he mine, and we used to go to smorgasbords together, smorgasbords, and I knew what his voice sounded like. And it was Gene. And I did not know that he was expected to pass that night. And... uh but I told his sister right when she called, Gene's died, hasn't he? And she said, yes. I heard that from a cousin of his, too, and uh, had a remarkable experience at his first cousin's place a couple of weeks later. Because I went over to her place in Beaverton, near, near Portland. Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, you know, she was the same age contemporary of Jean and I. In fact, Jean was older than me. He died at 58 in 08. So he was almost 10 years older than me. So his, his cousin was, was his contemporary. And uh, I went over there. And a psychic for the CIA was visiting her, one I had never met. I mean, I knew Jean's cousin. I'd run into her a number of times in events involving Jean and their immediate circle of friends in Portland and Vancouver. Um, But I did not know this psychic named Lori for the CIA. I never had Lori's last name. And I said, Lori, if if you're a psychic for the CIA, do you do that, that scrying thing that... James von Prague and uh, John Edward and uh, George Anderson do. And she said, you mean see see the deceased who are around people, spirits that are still close to people? And I said, yeah. And I was thinking she was going to either read Jean, who had died a couple weeks earlier, or my mother, who had died... Um, five years earlier and how I thought maybe my mom followed me up to the, uh, the Northwest when I returned to the Northwest after her death to kickstart my legal career. And she said, well, you mean that woman over on your left side? And I said, yeah, tell me about her. And this former psychic for the CIA or present psychic for the CIA, um, who had no connection to project Pegasus or project Mars, she was just a psychic person that worked for the U.S. government on something. Went on to describe everything that I would have been able to add to describe a former neighbor, neighbor of mine from California. That Swedish woman I mentioned, Inger Vincent, the Countess Blockenspiel of Sweden, was like an aunt to me. She and her husband had lived across the street from us from 1974 when we moved in that house in 1972. And then then their home was built and they moved in 1974 to her death sometime in the 1990s. I'm going to look it up because I want to know exactly when Inger passed. But this psychic for the CIA came up with her name, her daughter's name in Sweden. The fact that she was Swedish, the fact that there was a running joke in that immediate circle of families in the neighborhood there at Chatsworth, California, where um, we use the same name of that Folgers Coffee commercial was Mrs. Olson. Hmm. We would get Inger Vincent about reminding us of Mrs. Olson, that she was like an aunt to me and viewed me as her son felt like she was an aunt to all five of us kids in the family was like a sister to my mother. She said how much my mom and Inger enjoyed having um, pastry on, on Sunday mornings with coffee that Inger would come over to our place to share that with my mom, that her husband Warren Vincent was in the music industry He was probably somebody you encountered, Bruce. Warren Vincent was like the guy who pioneered quadraphonics for Columbia Records. 
he was like the producer for Andre Kostelanitz and Ray Conniff, but would also be requested by contemporary stars like Barbara Streisand and Johnny Mathis. And, uh, going, and he had credits music going all the way to being first sax for Kay Kaiser's big band. <laughs> he was on the Bennington with the Navy band during the war. He had a really top-shelf career in music. He was an often-requested sound engineer for Columbia. His name is all over Columbia, Columbia Records, especially during the 60s and 70s. And, and then she started saying really obscure things that only I might know. She said, well, one thing i got to say, what, what was the deal with her mouth? You all used to kid her about looking like the Joker. And, and Inger did. She had a wide mouth where she looked like Cesar Romero, who played the Joker on the old Batman TV show. Mm. And she said, I don't really understand what this, what this reading is, but she said her life experience relates somehow to your naming. And I said, well, that's, that's easy. My mother named me Andrew because she was inspired by the humanitarian boat lift in the late, 50s of the boat known as the Andrea Doria. She was going to name me Andrea if I was female and Andrew if I was male. And I popped out as a male. So she named me Andrew, Andy for short. But Inger, being a Swedish countess, was invited to be a stewardess on the Stockholm, the very big ship that collided with the Andrea Doria, Andrea Doria and sank it. So this, this psychic was seeing everything about Inger. And I left that meeting. I, I told her, if I had sat here like you did for a half hour, I could not have even remembered everything you said about our late friend, Inger Vincent. She was a wonderful person. And we were blessed to have her as a friend, but you, You've described her to the T. And I said, you did see her over my left shoulder, didn't you? And she said, yeah, I wasn't, you know, pulling this out of your memory of anger. She was right over your left shoulder. And I thought, then I continued the conversation a little further with, the, with both of them, um, even beyond what Lori had told me. I said, well, let me think why anger would be over my left shoulder now that I've moved back to the Northwest and away from Southern California when she was, you know, for so many years, my neighbor across the street. And what I figured out was that when, after Inger had died, now, again, I'm going to offer this as a proof of continuity, in this case, of Inger. Um, I rescued Warren after he had had a stroke and a heart attack from a position of real duress inside his vehicle. He went into his car to change a fuse, and he slipped between the front seat of his car and the dash of his car and was wedged between the front seat and the dash as somebody who had had a stroke and a heart attack, and it was going to be cold that night. So I went into our driveway one time. I was bringing some lunch home for my mom, and I saw Warren was lifting his hand up and waving his fingers at me, which I just about saw 
before I could, you know, even take lunch in for my mom, I thought, my God, Warren's stuck in his car. I better go over there. And he was stuck between the front seat, you know, the, the, the seat, essentially. One of those um, sofa chairs that some cars have. And the dash. So that when I put my foot against the dash and pulled on Warren to get him out and free him from his car, it actually made a popping sound. So he would have been in a world of hurt if I had not saved him. And then the reason I was back at home so I could save Warren was I was taking care of my mother and she was losing her battle against the very disease that had taken Inger's life, which was breast cancer. So two of the closest people that I had been in communication with were Inger's husband and her dear friend, my mother, who lived right across the street. What better reason for when I went all the way up to the Northwest, Inger followed me as essentially a guardian angel. Because everything I could have said about Inger and more, even remembered about her from her death and I don't know, 1991 or something, was picked up by this psychic. A psychic for the government who insisted that, no, Inger was over your left shoulder. I did read her, not your your memories of her. So I believe that, that was the best possible proof of the continuity of this great friend of mine and my family um, I, that I could have gotten. She literally said, no, she was over your left shoulder. So Inger would have had to go over a thousand miles north and followed me from Chatsworth, California to uh, Southwest Washington. So Andrew, um, we're out of time today. Um, yeah. I hope that we, were you able to cover the things you wanted to do? Yeah, I just wanted to cover those. Four. Yeah, good. But but I, what, what I want everybody to know is that I have correlated continuity with other people who've had such experiences, law clients, a sister-in-law, my fiance who's read hundreds of people. And we just want to make it clear that there's substantial evidence for continuity. That's what I think we should prepare for. Prepare to be yourself as you now are in a different dimension, one more beautiful more humane, more loving, more just, because that's what those who we've had contact with have always told us or let us know. We know that there are certain trends. One thing is we're virtually certain that those who have gone on to the afterlife have a limited amount of time they can spend here. But they do come here. They have been seen. I have seen my deceased parents, two deceased friends, and I didn't get a chance, maybe next time we can talk about what I call the Elizabeth Targ incident. I had about a 15-minute download from a person who I just knew about. I never met her, never attended a public talk by her or anything like that in 2006, four years after she died. So we, I would urge everybody not to fear death but to actually prepare for one as your current self, but in a different dimension, a different realm, because that's what I believe is actually going on. But it's so kind of compartmentalized or held back 
that those who have gone on to that realm cannot really spend very long here when they do come back. You know, with my mom, it was just Andy. With my dad, it was just long enough for me to see him and confirm that he still existed, but in that weird sparkly kind of form. And then I just drove on because I was so startled to see him with the late Elizabeth Dard, who was apparently quite a gifted individual. I only heard her for about 15 minutes while sitting next to her surviving husband. I can talk about that next time we meet about this subject. Um, With my friend Gene, it was pretty much just to confirm that he still existed. And the place where he was, I think, was probably Beulah Land, which that's what's called in the South, at least. It's described in Scripture as Abraham's bosom. That's about the only thing that Gene wanted to communicate to me, that he still existed and he was out of pain and he was in a beautiful environment. But but the the key thing that I want to express is that all these people were the same person. There was no evidence of a reincarnational event into another persona. No changes of appearance, gender, personality. And in the study of past, you know, reincarnation, that never happens. That's one of the major defects of the reincarnational theory, that when people do past life regression, nobody ever says, well, but I was, you know, Patrick Henry, whatever. You know, there's no, there's no evidence of reincarnation. It's, it's, it's what the law calls a mere assertion. I'm very, very uh, pleased with today's interview. It was good. I think people need to... Um, look at what their belief systems are, and they need to do what we did today, which was show another possibility. And I I appreciate that. A visit by somebody from the realm that people go to when they die is often with some displacement. So in other words, if a man loses a friend, that friend will often place a phone call, let's say, to that man's daughter or son-in-law. I've been collecting such cases So in other words, it's so special for those who have gone on to the afterlife to communicate with us. They often have to do it with indirection Hmm. by contacting somebody as sort of a surrogate for the person they would really like to be talking to. And I've been collecting those stories now for quite a number of years. All right. Andrew, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for watching and listening to the Timeless Voyager series podcast. You know, we're on video players like YouTube and audio players like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. But one thing you can do to support the growth of the Timeless Voyager series is to hit that like button, share, comment, and please subscribe. You know, it really helps to keep the podcast on the internet so that I can keep producing content like the program you just watched and or listened to. Also, uh, they're very important because they trigger these algorithms that help grow the Timeless Voyager channel. And remember, there's no obligation and the actions that you do here are free. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one.
Yeah.